If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. From Birds Canada, this is The Warblers. This is The Wake Up Call, a special podcast series from The Warblers by Birds Canada. I'm Andrea Grass. I am Andres Jimenez. Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of The Wake Up Call. I'm really excited to have you back for this one. Today we're joined by Dr. Amy Lee Cowenberg. She is the Associate Director of the Atlantic Region for Birds Canada, but she also coordinates a number of conservation programs, including the High Elevation Land Bird Program, which is one of the things we want to chat with her today. But specifically through that program, she's become very well acquainted with the elusive Bicknell's Thrush. Uh, welcome, Amy Lee. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Let's dive right in. What is a Bicknell's thrush? My answer is usually non-charismatic. It's definitely one of those more underdog species. It's a bird that is very introverted. You don't see it around very much. And even its own recovery strategy actually describes it as mainly drab olive brown. So it's not like a ringing endorsement for an exciting bird. But if you look under the surface, it is a bird that is very interesting in that it is extremely range restricted. You don't go down to your local park and listen for it. But it's one of those interesting birds that shows like the amount of biodiversity out there and all these little niche habitats that birds inhabit. It occurs in only a few areas in eastern North America for its breeding range, and its non-breeding range is down in the Greater Antilles, where it exists mostly in high elevation areas of Española, so Dominican Republic and Haiti. And it's one of the Catharis thrushes, so related to the Great Cheek thrush and the Swainson's thrush and Hermit thrush, those fellows. So that's kind of also what it looks like, but more drab. This bird really represents what this series is all about. And we're going to go in depth into it in a little bit. But can you tell us and our listeners how and when this new species was discovered? It was actually discovered in 1882, but it was thought of as a great cheek thrush. And they're actually almost impossible to tell apart by sight in the field, if you can find them. And even their songs are very similar, but you can kind of tell them apart. So in 1995, it was actually designated as its own species. Previously, it was just a subspecies. So that's kind of sort of interesting in and of itself that it's only recently become a species that we've recognized. And it's different from the great cheek in that it really prefers this high elevation. It's generally smaller, more reddish colored, but there's also overlap because there's kind of a spectrum of color and size. That's sort of how it was established. And in that time, it's we've also come up with a recovery strategy for it because it was listed as threatened. And we were able to tailor that to its particular needs because it has these sort of special needs in terms of really thick habitat in high elevations. You've mentioned high elevations. Where can they be found in the country and where might our listeners go to find and see one of those? We actually have a lot of the potential breeding habitat for this bird in Canada. So you'd think that you'd be able to find them. However, they occur 
only in these specific areas. So in northern New Brunswick, there's sort of high elevation forests that are sort of spruce fir mix around Mount Carlton Provincial Park and also in the Kedgewick Highlands. And then in Nova Scotia, they only occur in the Cape Breton Highland, mostly actually within Cape Breton Highlands National Park, but also a bit south of there. And then also in areas of Quebec, particularly along the St. Lawrence and up and the Gaspésie. They range from 380 meters to a little over a thousand meters. That's the, the habitat that they prefer. They're on these mountaintops, essentially. And the reason they like this is they really want regenerating forests. Traditional habitat is this windblown, constantly regenerating fir forest. In some of the lower elevations, particularly in New Brunswick, it's in right in the middle of the industrial forest because that kind of creates, so clear cutting and regeneration kind of creates this same sort of very dense, thick regeneration of fir and spruce trees. If you're a forester, you actually have a pretty good chance of hearing one in these areas, but your average birder doesn't happen to go in those areas. That being said, in Cape Breton Highlands National Park, that is generally the place that you can try to find them, but they've become more and more scarce over the years. I'm so upset with myself right now. I did a trip out to Cape Breton a couple of years ago, and I had no idea about this bird, and I could have been looking for it. Ah, <laughs> I had not even really heard of it myself until I started studying this bird, and it's just not one that crosses a lot of radars because it is, you know, only in these very specific areas. Could you tell us a bit more about its life history and how, you know, it's a difficult species to study? It prefers to put its nest as far into this very dense forest as it can. And when you're trying to study it, it also interestingly has a polyandrous type breeding arrangement. So multiple males are mating with a female. Multiple males will attend a nest because there can actually be eggs from different males, but the same female within the same nest. So that's a really interesting little fact about it. The females will actually defend sort of home ranges. You've said they like this very dense forest, but I've seen many dense forests. Can you tell us what you mean by a very dense forest? Is this more like a shrubby area that is very low, close to the ground and super full of branches? What is this dense forest? So it's sort of like trees that are a little bit taller than yourself. It looks like a wall of trees almost a lot of the time. You actually have to wear protective glasses on your face and zip up your pockets because all the branches are actually sort of rubbing against you so much that it can actually knock things out of your pocket. You know, there's just branches against your face and your whole body. You're like sort of squishing. You're being sucked into an amoeba of forest and you just kind of wade your way through until you get to it. That's the kind of density we're talking here that they really prefer. That's why they're so, so tough to study because they're really... They love this kind of habitat. This is not the place for your average birder, right? It doesn't give you a lot of room to walk around or it doesn't give you a very good view of the canopy so you can see the birds flying around and about. It's not doesn't have an open area so you can see the grasslands and stuff like that. It's making me imagine my day as a biologist there. If I were to be sampling the species and trying to find them, it must be pretty tough. What are the rest of the conditions that people need to confront when they're studying the species? We actually have to have a very serious vehicle and many with Kevlar tires and extra tires to actually get to the survey routes because you're it's all these forestry roads essentially that are just sort of chipped gravel. So yeah, so you need your tough vehicle, you get in your tough vehicle, you use your GPS because there's no cell phone service to get to your uh, route. And then once you're there, the other factor is it's northern New Brunswick in June. 
So the black flies are incredible and the bugs in general. So we have very intrepid field technicians. They're always extremely game for all this uh, hardship in a way. It's quite an adventure to go to these routes. And we do surveys in the morning and in the evening. The other thing that's kind of interesting about it is particularly the evening surveys, you kind of are showing up in the middle of nowhere in these deep woods and then you get out of the car and sometimes your partner goes and takes the car to a different route and you're standing out there really alone, except for the birds and also except for the moose and the bears. So this is also habitat for some of these larger fauna. That's another factor. We often have times where you'll be doing, you know, your six stops on your route and you stop and do a point count, which is do you stop uh, for a set amount of time and listen for the Vicknose thrush. And you record where they are and how they're moving. And we also record several other high elevation species. Sometimes you have to stop a route because there's a moose in the way. I reckon many people are not drooling like I am right now, but Kevlar tires, moose, bears, and birds. Sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> what do you What do you mean by when you say we, Emily? We Birds Canada and who else? In this case, I refer to we sort of as the our technicians that work with us each year, but also we work with a number of partners because particularly because this species is very difficult to study and also just to monitor, to do regular population monitoring. We work with Environment Canada, we work with provincial and also with forestry companies themselves because in New Brunswick, 95% of the Bicknell's thrush habitat actually overlaps with actively forested land. We actually have worked very closely with them over the years, particularly on the uh, pre-commercial thinning. If a stand is clear cut and it's regrowing and it kind of gets to this perfect density level for Bicknell's thrush. And unfortunately, from a commercial perspective, that is also the time to cut some of the trees down to make room for all of them to grow. So basically making it less dense which is exactly what the Bicknell's thrush don't want. So we've worked very closely with forestry companies for a long time to both survey for air in areas where they are going to do this pre-commercial thinning to let them know if there's a Bicknell's thrush there that they don't accidentally take a nest so they'll postpone their thinning. But also in the longer term, we've really been trying to protect areas from pre-commercial thinning at all in areas where we're seeing lots of Bicknell's thrush. We'll be right back. How do you like your coffee, Andrea? Cream? Sure. I like mine bird-friendly, certified. Then I have just the brew for you. Birds and Beans Coffee Roasters only use beans from farmers who keep the native forest habitat intact, growing coffee in the shade of a variety of native trees. That's good for migratory birds. Good for everyone. This coffee is even certified by the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. It protects biodiversity, supports sustainable farming, and it's fur trade and organic too. Ah, not to mention delicious. Deliciously bird friendly. If any of our listeners also like their coffee bird friendly certified, here's how to get it. Order online at birdsandbeans.ca slash warblers. Make sure to use the slash warblers because that means birds and beans will also donate 10% of the purchase price to support this podcast. You can also use the link on your podcast player. Sounds great. Andreas, how about another cup? Let's do it. I'm quite curious how you actually know what's going on with this population. Like with some bird species, you can just find a nest and be like, yep, one, two, we got two birds at that nest. These guys don't sound like they're quite so straightforward. Plus, they're hidden in this dense, 
dense forest, like we know the population's declining, but how do we know that? Yeah, so that is uh, one of the challenges. Basically, we've worked very closely with the International Bicknell Thrush Conservation Group, which includes all of the partners from the whole range of the Bicknell Thrush, including down south where they do their non-breeding season. And in the breeding season, we've actually set up what is called Mountain Bird Watch, which is a monitoring program where we do point counts, as I mentioned before, where we're going to the same places each year and we do different stops along a route to do a point count. And we listen for Bicknell Thrush. And this is sort of how we get an idea of like, so we're putting forth this amount of effort and we're hearing this many Bicknell Thrush. And if we do that same year over year, we can get some sense of the trend. And for Bicknell Thrush in the States, in Vermont and areas like that, this has worked very well because they have more Bicknell Thrush sort of per area there. They get lots of detections. So you hear enough. In Nova Scotia, we've had the problem for many years, since 2002, have been doing these surveys and we kept getting fewer and fewer detections. In 2017, we actually, on these 20 survey routes that we do, we actually had zero detections. We didn't even hear a Bicknell's thrush in all of these surveys that we did in Nova Scotia that year, and it had been going down over the years. So that is a real challenge because if it's just zero, it's hard to make a trend. And then we're like, well, what's happening there? So, but at least it's showing us they're going down. In New Brunswick, we haven't had the same thing happen, which is interesting. So we have continued our mountain bird watch surveys there, and we still get enough detections to be able to calculate trends over time. It didn't go down to zero like it did in Cape Breton. Interestingly, the habitats are also quite different in that the Cape Breton habitat is much more of a traditional type habitat, while the New Brunswick habitat has uh, a lot of forestry activity. It's all never straightforward with the Bicknell's thrush when it comes to trying to study their populations and their ups and downs. And this is very important to clarify. You could you could have a case in which you have a decrease and then you go like, all right, the population is decreasing, but you could also have a decrease in which you're not finding the birds. That doesn't mean that they are decreasing. How could you discriminate between the two? That is kind of what we came at. We're like, are we, are they not there? Or are we just not finding them because they're such a, they're known as this secretive bird? But in this case, it's, it shows how important that monitoring is because we did find them before. You know, doing, we were doing the exact same protocol in terms of listening for them and we, we found them before and we're not finding them again. So we were like, are they actually gone? So what we did was deploy these automated recording units, which is basically a box with two microphones on it that you strap to a tree and we, basically increased our listening time. So instead of a person going to a point, standing there for 10 minutes or 20 minutes listening, writing down how many Bicknell's thrush they hear, this these were deployed for four days and they would come on in the morning and evening, at least four days, often longer. And then we collect them up again. And then somebody sits there with headphones on listening, which is a tremendous amount of work. But we put these out in a bunch of locations, particularly where we used to find Bicknell's thrush. And in this increase in listening time, we did actually find them. So that was very exciting. It also shows that it's like, we've had to increase the listening time. Likely, there are fewer birds there. So now what we're doing is working with our partners, particularly Environment and Climate Change Canada, to come up with a new protocol using these devices to try to, over time, try to get uh, population trends. It's a challenge for sure. With the Bicknell Strush, sounds like the big challenge has been to actually find it. Oh, absolutely. It is. And I think that's such an important thing to think about when we think about these birds, because, you know, we all said we're like, I didn't even know about the Bicknell Strush, really. 
until, you know, I heard about it on a podcast or something like that, or I started working on them. And, you know, it really begs that question of like, well, are these birds important? How do we conserve what we don't know or we don't know about? It's such a challenge when you, if you just get zeros when you're doing a survey, it's very hard to, yeah, to decide, are they not there? And we have the very same problem with our work with the forestry companies, because if we go in to a stand of forest that is going to be pre-commercially thinned, and we do a point count, and then we don't hear a Bicknell thrush. Is a Bicknell thrush really not there? And we decided over time that we can't say for sure that the bird is not there because it's so hard to find. So we've actually moved to automated recording units in that work as well, because one point count is just not enough to get a sense of if they're there or not. And their ranges are huge, right? It's, it's hard. So it sounds like uh, the logging industry is a threat for this bird. Could you expand on that or explain what some of the other threats are to their population? The big one is definitely logging both in the breeding area and in the non-breeding area. So as I mentioned, a lot of their non-breeding area is actually on Haiti and in Dominican Republic and illegal forestry due to subsistence, you know, and things like that are a main problem there. That is a real challenge because if it's people's livelihoods are involved, things like that, it really makes it very difficult. And then also other threats include basically anything that degrades their habitat. So some wind farm development, that kind of thing on their breeding areas been known to be a problem, mainly because it just, you know, roads and, and clearing and things for that. And also there's sort of unknown threats. For instance, in Cape Breton Highlands, it's largely Cape Breton Highlands National Park that is there. So that hasn't been forested, but we're seeing fewer birds. Things like moose grazing is something that may be a factor because it's sort of reducing the density. These birds also migrate like many of the birds we talk about. Things like climate change affecting the amount of severe weather they might encounter on the way. Things like that are also a factor for this bird. Moose is interesting. I didn't see that one coming. This is still something that's being studied. Um, so it's not like there are a whole bunch of papers that show that this is happening, but it is one of the things that is postulated to be the reason for some of the climbs in the more traditional habitats that aren't affected by forestry. What kind of role have you played towards the conservation? of this species? My main role has been through Birds Canada as the High Elevation Land Bird Program Coordinator. So as I mentioned, we do this monitoring work and it is actually the only monitoring that's done of the birds in New Brunswick and Cape Breton that is fed into the range-wide monitoring. You know, it kind of goes back to your question about like, if we don't know it's there. So if these surveys were not actually being done by Birds Canada, we wouldn't know this. We wouldn't know that there's this decline in Cape Breton. And it's sort of the northern end of the range for this bird. So we might've been like, well, maybe it didn't ever occur there, or maybe it was always in these low numbers. So I think that's a big factor that you know, a huge contribution to this bird, particularly in Canada, uh, in terms of their conservation is just that knowledge that we've gleaned from these surveys. And also our work with the forestry companies, because, you know, our regulations come through the provinces and through the uh, federal uh, regulations, and those are passed down to the forestry companies. And a lot of the times, Birds Canada and myself and my colleagues have been sort of the, the middle person between those, uh, the regulations and the forestry companies to help sort of interpret them and also to help give uh, expertise on best management practices and that sort of things, particularly for the forestry 
forestry companies, it is easier for them to ask us questions than to ask them directly of the regulators. We've played this sort of honest broker role. Birds Canada is particularly well poised for that kind of work because we're an NGO and we're able to sort of facilitate a lot of discussion. And we have done that, particularly for the Bicknell's thrush. In New Brunswick, forestry is one of the biggest pieces of the economy. Obviously, restricting forestry is a challenge. We are in a position where we can sort of try to find the easy way forward because a lot of the work we've done with forestry companies you know, they've come to us and said, well, this area is actually, we can set this aside for the big nose thrush because it's not of high economic value. So finding those little areas that we can have this, uh, make these conservation impacts is, is really been one of the biggest contributions. Mm-hmm. Just working together to find a balance. It's so important. You kind of need a sense of humor if you're working on this bird, because first off you say, tell somebody, oh, I work on the big nose thrush. They're like, what? What is that even? And then they say, well, do we even care about saving that bird in this one spot? Why, if it's only going to go in this one spot, it should generalize more, you know? So it's, yeah, you definitely need a sense of humor with this bird. But uh, it also teaches us that the things that we don't know about, you know, are often important. And the more you look into something, you know, it has this sort of non-charismatic package, but it's actually quite a fascinating bird. And also this interesting link bird between us and forestry companies. And, you know, like oftentimes we're like, oh, the big bad forestry companies are cutting down all the forests. And ruining our lives. You know, in this case, this is the point of contact that we've had. And by not thinning some of these forests, that is also helping a number of other high elevation species. And also, you know, just having these, having companies be more aware of the types of biodiversity that are in their forests. We have these incredible species and incredible biodiversity around us, and we just need to better capture that value within how we value things economically. We'll be right back. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. To learn more or to make a donation, visit birdscanada.org. And if you give, please note the podcast in the comment box. These birds are found in a pretty unique ecosystem, which has value, absolutely. And it sounds like by protecting the Bicknell's thrush, it's probably leading to benefit other bird species and and fauna in those habitats as well. What other birds do you work with through the High Elevation Land Bird Program? So we actually have a species, uh, like a list of species that we also track. So it's also actually a monitoring program for those birds. So we have the fox sparrow, the song sparrow, winter wren, yellow-bellied flycatcher, and the black-capped chickadee, boreal chickadee, twins and thrush, hermit thrush, big nose thrush. There it is. We also do red squirrel, which is interesting. Not a bird. So the red squirrels is actually an interesting. The reason we keep track of them is because they actually predate nests of Bicknell's thrush, or there's evidence that they do. So we've kind of been keeping track of them as well. And we haven't done uh, much with the data yet, but it is, that's another uh, sort of threat is like as red squirrel populations go up or down, that might be affecting uh, nesting as well. But yet, despite everything, you absolutely love this bird, right? 
it's amazing. You know, they still are hanging on, right? You know, you got to give it credit for that. And I think we can hold up the other end of that bargain. If it's going to keep trying, I think we can do what we can to keep it going. On that note, then, what what can listeners do if they are interested in helping Bicknell's Thrush? How can they help? So that is, like, again, a challenging one, because even as a researcher, I have a hard time knowing what to do to help the Bicknell's Thrush. However, in general, you know, with, you know, there's forest certifications and things like that, which may not necessarily include directly Bicknell's thrush, but buying, you know, paper products and, and things like that from certified sustainable forestry companies, that is definitely a good step. And just even just awareness is a, is a big one. Like, you know, we've said several times, you know, even a lot of birders are not super familiar with this bird or where it occurs. I think in general, it's like the things that you do for all of the birds that, you know, we all love trying to, you know, consume less and things like that, where it comes, to, you know, comes down to, you know, lowering climate change, that sort of thing. So there's not a very direct thing, I guess, that it that you can do for Bignall's thrush other than continuing to try to do as many bird-friendly things as you can, like the bird-friendly coffees and things like that we've talked about on this uh, podcast. Sometimes we need justification to just keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, Bignall's thrush is, is one of those justifications. I mean, you, you can come and be a technician or a volunteer um, if you really... I actually made my husband come along for tooth field seasons. So, and we're still married at the end. So there's a ringing endorsement. We usually get started pretty early. Uh, the job postings usually go out in February and uh, we're usually have all our hiring done by March. But yeah, they go up on the Birds Canada website and also on Work Cabin. Yeah, it's a fun adventure for sure. And we do get people returning to do the, the surveys because you they love that sort of remote field work in challenging conditions. Well, Amy Lee, thank you so much for being with us. It was amazing to learn about Big Nose Thrush. And if any of our listeners have seen or heard a Big Nose Thrush before, let us know on social media using the Warblers podcast hashtag. And we would love to get to see your sightings. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. The Warblers is produced by Andres Jimenez, Jody Allaire, Andrea Gress, Ruth, Friendship Keller, and Kate Goldfish. This episode was edited by Greg McLaughlin and engineered by Katie Jack, with the music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nico. Until next time, Keep birding.